So can I tell you, uh, can I tell you an embarrassing story? Not that one, but a different embarrassing story. Um, when I was a teenager, I was there was this girl I was interested in, and um, I never really let my dad into that area of my life before, um, <clears throat> but it just seemed like the right thing to do. I was ready to like tell my dad that I was interested in this girl and get his advice, and uh, he would see me as this um, very godly, um, pure Christian man that he had raised, and his response would be, oh God, thank you for sending me this son, you know, like, like you, know, you, you would expect that too, right? Um, and so uh, we, we, we had some um, yard work planned for that day, and so I had decided that this was the day. I'm going to tell my dad that there's this girl I'm interested in, and I want him to give me some feedback, some pointers maybe. And so um, there's something you need to know, though, about uh, my friends at the time. Uh, so I was fortunate enough to grow up with Christian friends, um, and these Christian friends were uh, very good Christian friends. They were uh, uh, like obsessed with Jesus, and they were very passionate and um, borderline weird, but um, they were really good friends. And if you've ever been obsessed with something, you know that when you're obsessed with something, you kind of take on this own culture around whatever you're obsessed with. Like, have you ever met a friend who like really loves wine and you're at dinner and you don't know they love wine and they take a sip and they don't say, mm, that was good. They say, ah, the notes and the palate and the tannins. When you're obsessed with something, <laughs> you kind of take on your own world, this own language. And so uh, my friends being obsessed with Jesus, we had our own language and our own world. Specifically when it came to dating, um, we didn't date or we didn't ask any girls out. We pursued them. And we didn't date, but we courted. For those of you who uh, maybe in the room understand, uh, we kind of kiss dating goodbye. Um, and that's the language that we used. Um, but dad um, was not familiar with this language. <clears throat> so it went a little bit like this. Uh, hey, dad. Mm-hmm. Uh, I uh, was just wondering, um, there's this girl I'm interested in, and I'm wondering if you had any godly advice or counsel on how to pursue her. And there was um, a very uncomfortable amount of silence. <laughs> and dad turns around, because, you know, when you're trying to be vulnerable and share with someone what you care about, the best time to do it is when their back is turned to you, right? So dad turns around, and the expression on his face is like he has just um, accidentally taken a sip of spoiled milk. Like, pursuer? Why didn't you just ask her out? Like, what are you following her home? Pursue? What do you mean? <laughs> Quit being so weird. <laughs> you have a restraining order or something? What's going on? So as funny as that is to me now, I want to invite you into the emotional world of a teenager for a moment. The expectation that I had, the way dad was going to react to me was this, thank you God for this pure son you've given me, but what I got was not that. And I think we've all kind of experienced moments like that where we open up to someone about something we really care about, and then we realize Oh, 
I am never going to open up about that to you again. I'm, I've learned that this is not a safe thing to do, right? I think we've all sort of experienced uh, moments like this, and don't you know how difficult it is to remain open after you've been hurt? After you open up about something that's important to you, I think most of us in life have learned experiences like this, and it's probably safer just to not bother people with things that we care about. And it's not that we run out of things that we care about. It's not that we just quit caring and we just quit sharing. It's the fact that the words that come to our mind and to our hearts about the things that we care about, the words run out of places to land. The listening ears, it seems that they disappear. And day by day, week by week, month by month, year by year, we become more and more silent, more and more quiet, keeping our cares to ourselves. And I know this is true because what eventually starts to happen as this learned behavior takes hold that we are not supposed to, or sometimes it's not safe to open up about what we care about, this um, relationship practice spills over into the most important one, our relationship with God. Have you ever brought up things to the Lord that um, didn't change? And you just, you know, the, the, the Christian answer was, well, his answer was just not yet. But inwardly you felt hurt because it really mattered to you and there was silence on the other end. What are the prayers that you've actually given up on in life? What don't you pray about anymore? So often we impose our cares onto others or we don't impose our cares onto others because we're afraid of getting shut down or rejected, and then the fix is usually, well, I'll just take care of it myself. It's not a big deal. And so we learn, this again spills over into our relationship with God, and we learn, I can only let God in so far. There's only certain things that I can bring up with God to the point where our prayers become, uh, bless this food to the nourishment of my body and keep me safe. Does that sound familiar? (laughs) Somewhere along the way, You've stopped praying about what matters to you. And so today, we'll talk about a story where someone imposes a care that they have on Jesus, and we'll see what he does. So we are in uh, the series of John, and so this week we're going to be in John chapter 2, verse 1 through 11, and uh, I want to give, set the stage a little bit before we get into the story. So uh, Jesus has just been baptized in, in the Jordan. And at this point in his ministry, he's gathering his followers, he's gathering his disciples. And at this point, he has about six. He has John and James, uh, Peter and Philip. And then we're just coming from the story where Andrew and uh, Nathaniel are introduced to the story. And so um, what's happening now is he has this group of six guys, six disciples. They're at Jesus's hometown And uh, they get word that there is a wedding going on. And so uh, they get this wedding invite, and it's only about like eight to 10 miles away, and so they decide to go. 
And so let me tell you real quick something about uh, Jewish weddings and the way that they work. I know a lot of you are probably familiar, but uh, I thought it was kind of fascinating. So here you go. <laughs> the way that uh, Jewish weddings actually worked was uh, in, in a similar way, uh, the man and the woman would become uh, betrothed or engaged to be married. And then what happened is that the man would actually um, separate himself from the woman for a time that she could only guess. She would kind of know the roundabout time, uh, but it was usually around a year. And what he was doing this whole time was he was actually preparing uh, a place for her. So uh, preparing a room or, or adding an addition onto a house or, or basically providing, right? Um, and so then what would happen then, usually at night, um, is him and all of his buddies with torches or whatever, no pitchforks, but torches, um, <laughs> would go to the house because <laughs> they're getting married. Come on, why would there be pitchforks there? Um, and he would go to the house and knock on the door and he would say, surprise, we're getting married today. Could you imagine being a woman in that culture? <laughs> Golly, it'd be awful. But what, what it teaches us is that the woman was actually in a constant state of preparedness constantly ready for him to come back. And so what would happen is uh, he would knock on the door. Uh, hopefully, thankfully, she was ready uh, because he married her for her character, not her beauty. Come on. Um, and so what they would do is um, they, would, uh, they, would, they would get together and they would parade through the town and they would have a, a quick ceremony. And then the reception was like a week long. A week long. And so during all this time that he's preparing not only a place for her, he's also ordering food, ordering wine, making sure the venue is ready, and all of this stuff so that, um, and, and man, I just love this about this culture because what it says is, um, hey, all of you guys, come to my town. I'm getting married. Don't worry about a place to stay. Don't worry about food. Don't worry about any drink. I just want you to stay here for a week with me and celebrate this new chapter of my life. And so it's this really cool thing. And so they're celebrating for an entire week. And, uh, and you know that like some of those like strong farmer guys were like fasting for the whole week before so that they can like indulge on all this food at this wedding. And so it's this really fun, really exciting thing. And this is where we pick up on uh, verse one. It says, on the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. So let me, I think this is kind of significant. Jesus, for some, is often depicted as this very holy, monotone, walked very slowly, thus thou, thee, thine, and they, um, kind of guy. But Jesus was the kind of guy that people invited to a wedding, to a party, where people were enjoying themselves. He was where all the cool things were going on. And verse 3, when the wine ran out, uh-oh, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no more wine. Now, why is Mary involved? I think some people actually think, I found this sort of interesting, that Mary might have been this involved and care this much about this because it could have actually been a relative of Mary and Jesus that was actually getting married. Now, we know that the groom had all of this time to prepare only for showtime to fall short. This was a huge embarrassment. This is a, these are small, like little communities. They would never stop talking about you. And in some cases, 
because everyone is invited and this is a big deal, you've maybe traveled a little bit to get there, guests would actually sue and press charges against the bride and groom, the family, for running out of food or wine. And don't look surprised. I know there's been a few weddings that you've gone to that you wished you could have pressed charges against the bride and groom because of the craziness that they put you through in the ceremony and the reception. So this is pretty relatable. Got it? Okay. Uh, So verse 4, Jesus said to her, this is Mary coming, hey, they have no more wine. Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Okay, so this is cryptic Jesus. This is Jesus speaking like four levels above and probably four levels below what's actually going on in reality, and it probably means like six different things, but we're going to come back to this. We're going to camp out on this for a minute later. So uh, follow me with uh, verse six. So now there were six stone water jars that were for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and he filled them to the brim. Oh, man, to be a servant in this situation. Because I think, you know, Mary's like, do whatever he tells you, and they're like, fill the jars with water, and they're like, what? (laughs) Those jars with water? You want to use this water? Because uh, these jars were for the rites of purification. This is where they were washing their hands before they eat. And then uh, according to other Levitical law, this is if you've touched uh, a dead person, this is where you go to wash your hands and to be ritually pure. And so the poor servants are saying, you want to use the bath water? Because I know, I heard you guys talking about wine (laughs) and you want to use the bath water. Sure, yeah. Um, So these were washing jars. They're washing their hands. This is bath water. And the servants have to do it because they're servants. But what I really love about this is Jesus says fill them, but what do they do? He says they fill it to the brim. And this is something that might have actually taken hours, going to fetch the water and bringing it back in the amount, like what are you thinking while you're going back and forth like this? But the amount of faith, I think, that they have to fill it with water. They fill it to the brim. And then verse 8 And he said to them, now draw out some of the water and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. Could you imagine that trip? So you scoop a little bit of water and they're like, okay, coming up to Jesus. And like, do you have like drops or something? Or like, were you going to dilute this with some of the other wine? Just like this. Oh, (laughs) okay. (laughs) I'll just take this to the master of the feast then. What a moment. What are you thinking while you're walking up there? How in the world will they be feeling? But verse 9 comes in and saves the day. When the master of the feast had tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it come from, but the servants who had brought the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom over. Now, um, okay, there is something very deep going on here. Very deep. Um, So... um, Really, nothing in Scripture is accidental. Not a place, not a name, not a thing, not an event. It's all there on purpose. And weddings, as some of you might know, according to uh, a few of the prophets and the Old Testament, weddings were always representative, always prophetically representing 
the day that the Messiah would come and the joy therein. So weddings are representing the Messiah coming. And so uh, John actually lists this as the first miracle for a reason. He's trying to make a point. He's saying that Jesus is all that we were expecting the Messiah to be. This is why it's the first miracle. And then we have this really beautiful image of water and wine and blood, and my hour has not yet come. Do you see the mystery yet? This water for purification, but now turned to wine, which at communion Jesus equates with his blood, and he's saying this water, this ritual that you are doing is now going to be, you are, you are pure because of water, but man, there comes a day where you become pure because of my blood. My hour has not yet come. Time for my crucifixion has not yet come, but it's here. It gives us this beautiful word picture. My blood will purify you, not this water. Verse 10, and he said to him, the, the master of the feast calls the bridegroom over and says, now everyone usually serves the good wine first. And after people have drunk freely, Got a little tipsy, lowered their expectations. Then you have the poor wine. But you, my friend, have saved the good wine until now. Now this is, I think we love this, right? Because, you know, Jesus makes really good wine. It's not bad wine. It's not average wine. It's, it's worth mentioning. It's worth calling the groom over and saying, hey, are you sure? This is good wine. But, my friends, it's not good wine just for good wine's sake. Remember, there's a deeper purpose. Jesus is trying to say something really beautiful here. That um, you, you've heard the term old wine versus new wine. Jesus is saying that there was an old way of doing things. There was an old Levitical law. There was an old thing that you had to do. But this new wine, this good wine, is now a representation of the way it's going to be forever through me, through my sacrifice. Now you have life in me, through me to the Father. In verse 11, this is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. This is the point of the whole book. This is the point of the whole thing. It's not just a miracle for miracle's sake, but he's manifesting his glory. He's revealing who he is that all might believe in him. Verse 12, after this, he went down into Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples and they stayed there for, excuse me, for a few days. What a story. What a thing that has just happened. What a cool thing. But remember how I said we were gonna come back to that one little part? Are you still with me so far? Are we following? Okay, cool. So we're going to come back to this part, come back with me to the wedding, come back to me with this moment between Jesus and his mother. Now, for Mary, as you can probably imagine, Mary has a really unique relationship with Jesus. Like, there is no bond like a mother and a son. This is a really unique relationship. And for Mary, she remembers who this is. She sees him walking through the door to the wedding. She remembers the shepherds. She remembers the angel. 
She remembers the wise men. She remembers the prophets. She remembers dedicating him that one day and that guy Simon and Anna coming up to him and saying, prophesying over their child that this is the Savior. She remembers all of this. And then she also knows that he has just been baptized by his cousin John and was gone for a few days. But now he's come back with followers. I think there's this hope stirring in her for what he was always going to be. And she sees it taking place. I think she, she thinks like, man, it's here. Something's happening. Mary understands his wisdom and his association with God, and you might think, well, when did that begin? The virgin birth had probably a lot to do with it. (laughs) Doesn't happen all the time. (laughs) There's going to be something special about this boy. He was the greatest kid. He made the best mud pies and the coolest, like, forts in the living room. But every once in a while, as a boy, he would stare off into heaven. And he had this like sort of contemplative look on his face, like he was looking for something or he was trying to listen. He was this young boy, but he had this ancient old soul. The Bible tells us that in, uh, in Luke chapter two that um, uh, Mary and her family would go every year to Jerusalem Uh, for the feast of Passover. And they would travel uh, as a large group and like kids are running everywhere. Everybody's having a good time. They're traveling as communities. And then they make this long journey and then they return home and to find out that he is missing. They can't find him. Now it's one thing to lose your own kid, but when you lose God's kid, there's a little bit more pressure on you (laughs) to find him. Um, and so uh, scripture says that after three days, the torture of three days, they find him. And what is he doing? He's in the temple asking the elders questions and, and sitting among the teachers and listening to them. Mary comes up to him, Jesus, what are you doing to us? And this 12-year-old boy looks up at his mom and says, don't you know Don't you know I'm supposed to be in my father's house? Jesus was on point his entire life, his whole life. Now back to this moment at this wedding between Jesus and his mom. Mary says, there's no more wine. The thoughts I imagine that are running through Jesus' head. One, he's addressing her as woman. And there's a little bit of separation there. It's not disrespectful, but it's saying, I, um, okay, uh, so, um, so the way it's sort of better, better translated in Greek um, is, uh, what is it to me or to you? And this is a, a common phrase. I think it's actually found uh, five more times in the New Testament talking about how uh, it's actually demons addressing Jesus. Jesus, Son of God, what is it to me or to you? It's this recognition of there is a separation of power. And so what Jesus is saying, woman, what is it to me or to you? He's saying, I'm on a different timeline. 
your priorities are no longer my priorities. That there is, uh, I am not, uh, well, that's not a, a great way to say it. I, I think he's, he's more saying that I am, um, I, yeah, just simply I am on a new timeline. And then I think there's another thing. Jesus, there's no more wine. There's other thoughts running through his head. He knows the prophetic significance of a wedding. Jesus sees the jars Jesus knows the significance of what wine is. He understands. He understands that the end is the cross. He understands that it's his blood that will purify. And what's so amazing to me is I really see this as the point of no return for Jesus. Jesus realizes that if I do this, If I say yes to this, the period at the end of this sentence is my death on the cross. And so this is not just any other moment to Jesus. This is very significant. What does this have to do with me? My time hasn't come. My time hasn't come always refers to the crucifixion. We know it's on his mind. And I believe it's, it's one of those stare into the heavens moments again for him. There's no more wine. My time has not yet come. All the thoughts running through my head. And I think Mary recognizes this look that Jesus has. And in faith, she says, do whatever he tells you. Something's going on. And the choice that he makes in this moment is so significant, giving the weight of what it means. And he says, fill the jars with water. And the drums start to play and the pad comes in. It's this real theatric moment. It's huge. This decision that he's just made. Fill the jars with water. Put me on the cross. Now Mary might have gotten a little bit of benefit out of this. She might have had an extra glass of wine. The bride and the bridegroom might not have gotten sued. Everyone will have a good time. But the fact is, Mary, casting her cares, she doesn't ask him anything. Now maybe she had a look in her eye and she implied. But she doesn't ask him a thing. And the fact that she didn't take care of it on her own, I think it says so much because what it did is it made a way for for so much more than her simple care to be addressed. Something happened that day. Something so much deeper than changing water into wine. And all she did was simply impose her care on Jesus. Now what is this mean for you and for me. My friends, the church, cast your cares on Jesus because you have no idea the extent to which he cares for you. We have believed a lie somewhere along the way that God in part does not actually care about what we care about. 
And maybe for some in the room, I know I've experienced this, that we don't feel like we should even bother him with a care that we have because maybe it's too small. We so overreact to these negative experiences in, in our life. My, my friend John told me this example, and I thought it was great, of, uh, you know, the feeling of, you know, just me handing you $10. It's like, oh, that's great. Oh, thanks. <laughs> Y'all, no, please. <laughs> okay. But then the feeling of having $10 stolen from you sits much differently. And so these negative uh, experiences of our life have piled up on us almost to this overwhelming point where we don't impose our cares on others because we're afraid of getting shut down because it hurt so badly last time. So we let our hurt experiences of life guide the way into tomorrow. When you express your cares to Jesus, though, These are gateways of his interaction with you. And not only that, remember the point of this story. This is Jesus manifesting his glory that everyone might know him. What if you casting your cares on him was the gateway to God manifesting his glory through your life? So my question to you is what are the things that you've given up on? What are the things that you don't pray about anymore? If you uh, remember the story of my dad and I (laughs) casting a care on him only to receive not what I was expecting, I think in some way that's kind of a simple idea. But I think for some of us, um, there are much more significant things that have happened in your life where you were thinking that life was going to go one way And it's gone a completely different way. Um, I think uh, I think one one of these, uh, if I can be really open with you, um, I think one of these moments in my life, um, my uh, um, there was kind of like a, a get together at Tim's house. And uh, and I had run outside for something, um, and then I came back came back into the house, uh, or I I almost did, and I remember standing outside the door. And uh, at the time, my mom was uh, really sick, and um, and I and I think in some sometimes in life, you know, when you go through something difficult, the the um, the uh, medicine or the, what, what's the word I'm looking for? Like the, the way to kind of overcome what's going on, I think at least for me, is you create a little bit of distance between you and the pain. You let yourself be distracted. And I think that was the moment. That was like I was in that. I was letting myself be distracted from what was difficult. And I just had this really honest moment with God um, right outside uh, his um, outside, you know, you could hear people laughing and, <laughs> and the lights from outside were <laughs> flooding the dark outside and I'm looking up at the stars and before I go in, I'm kind of taking a deep breath and uh, I just knew this was like the time to pray or, you know, open up. And, uh, and I said, you know, God, I know. Um, I know she's going to die. <laughs> like that just comes for everybody. That's part of life. Um, but not like this, though. Not this way. 
Thanks for listening. See ya. <laughs> Just one of those really heartfelt sort of things of, I care about this, uh, not this way. And um, so I think there's some of us in life where um, we casted our care on him and what we wanted to happen was not what happened. And so I think that interaction between us and God is in some way damaged us moving forward in our relationship with God. I think even today, I've like prayed for people and seen amazing healings. I would love to tell you stories. But when I hear that someone has cancer, I'm like, I don't know. I really cared about that with my mom and, and, and it didn't happen. And so we let these neg- negative experiences influence us moving forward. But again, Cast your cares on him because you don't know the extent to which he cares for you. And I think the take home today, like what do you do with this? I think uh, unfortunately it's really simple. I wish it was more challenging so you had like the, you know, the, the fuel to like really want to get there. But it's very simple. What is your we're out of wine things in your life? What is the God, I, I want this, I want this job. What is the, God, I really care about this person and like the, the way they're acting is really concerning me. It's a really simple thing. But I think what it says is we, we start, um, really the take home is start praying like Jesus cares about what you care about. We want God to move, but we don't um, <laughs> tell him what we care about. And we'd rather um, uh, just mention nothing than risking our hearts getting broken again. But I think the thing is, is this um, simple idea of sharing or casting your cares on someone is the basis for relationship. This is what good relationship is, is that we remain open So maybe some of you in the room need to turn to God and be more open. You create space in your day and in your life not to ask for anything. It's kind of like that simple practice of just being thankful. But in a different way, it's letting God into the things that we really care about. Because this exposes in us the Jesus that we see. And when you see Jesus rightly, I believe we cast our cares on him. When we understand him rightly, we cast our cares open on him. We have this open relationship with him. You know, this, um, uh, while I was kind of preparing this today, I think this was just... Um, this fact really means a lot to me. I think I've um, experienced this a lot. And like, like my relationship has changed with Jesus since learning this. You know, the, the, the thing is, is you know, cast your cares for he cares for you. That's actually scripture. It's a command, actually. It's a command that we're supposed to do this. But I think in some way, we, think, we figure ourselves as a beneficiary of this, and so it couldn't possibly really be a command. But when you cast your cares on him, my friends, it's not about you. Yes, Mary got some wine. <laughs> but there was such a bigger picture at play. 
And so, um, yeah, this is, this is just a very simple thing. This is a very simple take home, but it has such profound meaning in your life. And like I was saying, for me, it's, it's changed my relationship with God. It's changed the way I look at my life. It's incredible how often I catch myself being shut up and closed off, just assuming that God knows. Yes, he does, but there's such a difference between God knowing and then you telling him. That's the relationship piece. And so my prayer for you, my simple hope for you, is that your relationship with God becomes better and sweeter and deeper and more meaningful and that through you, his glory is made manifest in your circles and in your communities, in your families. Amen? Amen. Let me pray for you guys. Jesus. Man, you're amazing. <laughs> you're deep and you're meaningful. And God, we are so thankful um, that you give us access to you in the form of real relationship. God, we thank you that you call us deeper into that relationship with you. God, my mind goes back to that, that moment, that line in the sand that you drew, saying that if I say yes to this, then the end is the cross. God, I thank you that we are the beneficiaries of that moment even until now. Because of what you did is echoed and gone on through history to reach my life and our life. God, I pray for anyone in the room who, who feels shut off or that, that casting their cares on you is too difficult or too far away. God, I pray that you would bring comfort and peace to us right now. But Jesus, above all, Lord, us casting our cares on you God, the end that we want to see is that your glory is made manifest through us and our families and our homes in our communities and our workplace in Grand Junction, in the Grand Valley, God. May you have your way. In Jesus' name, amen.